There are some stories in Jewish history that are so bizarre, so fascinating, so completely wild that they feel straight out of a movie. Join hosts Yael Steiner and Jonathan Schwab for Season 3 of Jewish History Nerds, a new season of intrigue, mystical realms, and bloody battles. Jewish History Nerds will keep you on the edge of your seat as you learn all about some of the craziest and most amazing, yet largely unknown stories that fill Jewish history books. Jewish History Nerds Season 3, hosted by Yael Steiner and Jonathan Schwab. Available wherever you listen. Listen to podcasts. Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girl Bomb. Girl Bomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girl Bomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self care. So, to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you. And treat yourself to some Conair Girl Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, your favorite podcast that... Well, it's actually just your favorite podcast. Um, I know you love all of your podcasts equally, but face it, you love this one a little bit more. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and I'm ready to tell you all about cool people. And one of those cool people I'm going to tell you about is this week's guest, Bridget Todd, who is a feminist, an activist, and the host of the show, There Are No Girls on the Internet, which is also allowed to be your favorite podcast. How are you doing, Bridget? I'm good. I'm so excited to be here. And we've got Sophie on the call, too. Um, how are you? Sophie is our producer. How are you doing, Sophie? I, I'm doing. I'm doing, Margaret. That's all I got Good. for you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So today, I want to talk about computers and space. And I'm going to call this episode When Women Were Computers, because we're going to talk about how computer used to be a job description. But when I started looking into that, I started turning up more and more weird shit. So in addition to this being a story about women computers, both white and black, it's also about abolitionist astronomers, religious fanatics who are trying to raise the dead as well as explore the universe, uh, bisexual goth rocket scientists, and a gay man who saved millions of lives in World War II and was oppressed as hell by the government that he just saved. And I'm sure I'm leaving more stuff out. It's a weird story today, but I, I, I think it's going to be a cool one. So, so bear with me. Oh, this is right up my alley. I love talking about how women used to be the the OG computers, like yeah. we, us. You know, I yeah. love that. Yeah, I like. I, I I don't even know. I was probably in my thirties when I figured out that computer was used to be a job description, and I like grew up a like computer kid. You know, I was like, 
interested in computers from whatever. Anyway, I want to start with a quote from Stephen Jay Gould, who was an evolutionary biologist and a science educator. And it's a quote people have heard before, but I feel like it's relevant to kind of frame what we're talking about today. I am somehow less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain than in the near certainty that people of equal talent have lived and died in cotton fields and sweatshops. And because, so the show Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, it's, it's not about heroes. Like, I don't want to just be like, this person is the single best person anytime I'm talking about someone. And I really basically hate the great man theory of history that says that history was just moved forward by single spectacular individuals. Rather, I really like that the accurate story, which is that shit gets done by a thousand hands doing the work together and um, including spectacular individuals, but it's not solely them and it's absolutely not them working alone. So like, I don't know, Einstein was smart as fuck, right? But he wasn't the only person who was smart as fuck. And there were so many people who were smart as fuck who were prevented by systemic barriers from exercising their talents and contributing in the way that they would otherwise be able to. So today, I'm basically excited to talk about smart as fuck people who had to push past systemic barriers and then advanced human knowledge by leaps and bounds. Oh, I love that. I love that idea that, I don't know, there's something about engaging with history in this way where the people that you admire have to be hero figures. I understand mm -hmm. the inclination to, to lionize and heroize these people, but then you have this really surface engagement with them. Like you don't, they don't get to be the full, messy, flawed, complex, dynamic people that we know they are. They get to be like a sticker on a notebook, right? And how boring is that? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And like, and the warts and all thing kind of like keeps us locked out of it because we're like, oh, well, I'm not as cool as that person because I did bad stuff when I was a teenager or I don't know, I lose my temper sometimes or whatever the thing is, um, you know, being able to like, yeah, I really want to try and warts and all things as much as I can. And the two biggest warts that need to be talked about before we talk about anything has to do with space are the fact that a lot of what I'm going to be talking about are accomplishments that are claimed by two nations, neither of which do I have any love for. One of those nations is the United States of America, and one of them is the <laughs> the USSR. Fair. Um, <laughs> I love the just straight up, like, fuck the USA energy <laughs> that you just ground us in. <laughs> yeah. And it's not because it's not because I'm like, oh, well, if you hate the USA, you love the USSR. I'm like, no, they're they're both bad things. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. hate them both. <laughs> yeah. But but cool people within those structures figured out how to advance human knowledge as best as they could. Yeah, I don't know. And so. Most of these people get talked about in patriotic terms, but I, as far as I can tell, most of these people, and I'll, I'll mark some who did, most of these people did not see things in patriotic terms. They saw things basically, I mean, they cared about science by and large more than anything else. But I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious, Bridget, since you, you do a lot of work around this sort of thing, like how do you handle talking about people who do good things within bad frameworks? You know, like, like people like now we're all, stuck working these capitalist jobs and things like that, or, you know, all the science that ends up being used by governments, by by forces of colonization and all this shit? Yeah, what a good question. I, I think it's really complicated. And I guess I try to remember, kind of like you just pointed out, Margaret, that we're talking about people within systems, right? So like, I'm an anti-capitalist. I don't really fuck with our government like that. Like, I'm a, I consider myself a radical. 
but I'm still living in the United States. And so I still have Mm -hmm. to engage in commerce. I still have to, you know, do all the machinations that come with living in a white supremacist, like hetero patriarchy, fucked up society. And so I just try to, I, I, I'm, it's really easy for me to give myself that grace. And I try Mm -hmm. to extend that to the people that I'm like reading about and, and hearing about and learning about, because, you know, there are also individuals who did cool shit, but were trapped within systems that are very oppressive. And so it's a bummer to see like, oh, this cool shit was used to do something horrible that I don't agree with. But mm-hmm. you got to remember that it's like against that backdrop that none of us can really escape. Yeah. Um, I was There's this amazing trans woman named Lynn Conway who is super cool. She's still alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she is used to work for IBM back in the 50s. And she is like the person who developed the technology for the cell phone, right? And like she was fired from IBM for being trans and all this stuff. And reading about her story, I was like, wow, I'm so inspired by her. Like, what a life. But then I continued reading about her story and it's like, oh, she was designing defense for the government. Cool, 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 uh-huh. cool, 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 cool. Like, but that doesn't mean I admire her and her bravery and her, you know, ability to like, do cool shit and persevere any less, even though I don't love the fact that, you know, building defense for the government isn't really my cup of tea. Right. Totally. No, that 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 nails it. And I think that's the similar story. Now, I actually want to find out more about this this woman. But um, a lot of the people that are going to end up interwoven into this story have a very yeah, similar. You'll, you'll learn. You'll learn this when ever I'm talking with Bridget, I end up like spending like four hours Googling <laughs> cool in like the best possible way i'm gonna take that as a compliment absolutely <laughs> all right so i want to start by going way back in time just because it's fun and the first thing that i want to make like really clear to anyone um which i think everyone knows this unless you've swallowed a lot of really eurocentric history which is that the first people doing complex math were not white people the, the oldest undisputed mathematical documents are from Egypt and Mesopotamia, which is modern day Iraq, and they are from the second century BC. The concept of zero was imported into Europe from Africa. China was the first place to make use of negative numbers. To be fair, as far as I can tell, ancient Greece wasn't like terribly far behind, but they, you know, got these ideas from other places. And then the, the Celts picked some of it up. But, but overall, "Quote unquote Western knowledge is absolutely based on Asian and African knowledge, as far as anything I can tell. And then the other thing, in which I, I guess I we covered in the introduction, is to know is that the the first computers were people. So someone who computes, someone who solves mathematical problems, which a lot of it was about astronomy. A lot of it back in the day, a lot of the first complex math that people were doing was tracking the position of stars, which I I like because it ties." neatly back into the story that we're going to be telling today. And the word computer itself dates back to at least 1613 from some really weird quote that I could not figure out how to parse. And I like asked the internet and the internet's like, we don't know how to parse this either. Some quote about the mortality of man and how God or maybe Moses is the computer who counts your days. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And everyone's like, is this about God or Moses or something? Or is it just like some guy who's like, counting all your days who just like i don't know maybe a prophet or something i'm not sure someone listening to this knows and will be very upset that i didn't focus on this particular aspect but originally it was interchangeable with the word mathematician until eventually mathematicians started implying someone who was doing the thinking about math and computer was involving someone solving the math 
which of course makes a hierarchy. And when you figure out how to make a hierarchy, people figure out how to shove humans onto it based on existing systems of discrimination. So for a computer, they went with one of the classics. Men do the thinking, women do the solving, which is obviously thinking also, but you know, try explaining that to the patriarchy. <laughs> I love that it, people were able to get away with saying that solving didn't involve like complex thought. <laughs> Like, yeah. you're solving. Yeah, what else totally. would it involve? Yeah. Um, they're not doing the higher level thinking about it. I'm like, I can't do either of these things. So, <laughs> <laughs> And it's actually something that I've like noticed in a lot of fields that I've worked in is that, for example, in publishing, and a lot of my work in publishing as a writer, it's a lot of, this is not universal, and I'm not trying to call out individual publishers, but there's a lot of women doing the back-end work and, uh, who are mm-hmm. to publish men. Right. A lot of the people who make books happen, who are the editors, who are the typesetters, who are just doing all the work, not all the work, writing is work too. But I don't know. It and it it annoys me. Uh <laughs> when I've noticed yeah. it at publishers I work for, it annoys me. Yeah, it is annoying. And I see it I, I agree with you, and I've seen it in so many places. And I think that labor that we associate with women is always going to be devalued. And so yeah. even if it's the labor that like Literally, the thing would not exist without this labor. It is the, the the grease that keeps the wheels running. If it's associated with women or somehow like perceived as feminine, it, we just don't value it. And that you could see that in, I mean, everywhere, all all the all the way down. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. But it took a while for for Western men to actually figure out that they could make women do this work because they were like not convinced that women were smart enough to do the solving or whatever. So. So most computers started off men, as far as I can tell, until about the second half of the 19th century. And the first one I found, I, I, there's no part of me that believes this is the first woman computer, even under that name, but the first white English woman, Mary Edwards. Mary Edwards was a white English woman born sometime around 1750. And her husband, John Edwards, was a clergyman who couldn't make ends meet. So in 1773, he got himself hired by the British Nautical Almanac, among other people, to do astronomical calculations for their almanac. And so he became a computer, which is cool until you realize that probably mostly what he did is make an almanac that was used by British sailors to go around and impress people all over the world. But, you know, um, the people who can afford to pay people to do the math are often up to no good. So John Edwards, he's getting paid as a computer, but he's not a computer. His wife is a computer. His wife is doing all of the computing work. Uh, It's possible that he was doing some of it. I'm not sure, but I believe she was doing the majority or all of it. And I actually kind of wonder how many times throughout history this happens where some man just literally gets the credit and the pay. And and sometimes maybe in a mean way, being like, ha ha, I'm going to take all the credit. And maybe sometimes it's like a woman is like, all right, well, I can't get any shit done unless I marry this dude and get him to take the credit, you know? So he dies in 1784. God only knows what he dies from, probably just from being alive in the 18th century, which killed a lot of people young. And when he died, she wrote the, the nautical board a letter and was like, hey, uh, it was actually me the entire time. Can I, can I keep having this job? I like having this job. And they, they said yes. And she became one of the, their 35 computers and the first woman to work under the job title computer, at least in English. Probably a bad sign that I was like, oh, wow, they said yes. I know, right? <laughs> really bad. Very progressive of them. <laughs> but, it, but the sad part is it probably was. There was probably some yeah, huge no, fight. That's why. 
a woman taking credit for her labor and like yeah. being able to continue to do it. Who would have thought? <laughs> there's probably like an entire movie's worth of drama that happened around that decision. Oh. You know, there's probably like one of the guys was like, I think we should let her do it. And then he like loses his job. But then like <laughs> the head of it all, his wife is like, I won't fuck you until you let him come back. Yeah. You know, whatever. Starring Meryl Streep, obviously. Yeah. I would watch that. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that was like, kind of interesting, right? You're like, oh, wow. she's, And then you're like, oh, she's one of 35 people doing this work. And there's something that seems to get left out in a lot of the stuff that talks about this is it's less about individual genius, although it is about individual genius, but it's about the collective genius of people getting together and, you know, they're checking and rechecking each other's work. And they even end up like splitting problems to work on them as if basically parallel processing all of the mathematical problems, which I think is cool. So her daughter, Eliza Edwards, takes up the family business when her mom died. And then she had that job until they centralized the job into London. And since she didn't live in London. Uh, oh, and then England also passed a bunch of laws making it harder for women to find work because progress isn't linear. And sometimes people have it better and worse and things get better and then they get worse, which I don't like reminding myself right now. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Pretty grim reminder, especially uh, today, these days. Yeah. Uh, well, gay marriage was nice while it lasted. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to hold on to it. All right. So the first American woman computer I run across is a woman named Maria Mitchell, who's also a white woman. And she was born in Nantucket in 1818. And she had the good fortune to be born into a Quaker family. And usually I say the good fortune in kind of a sarcastic way, but this time I'm not being sarcastic. Quakers come up disproportionately on this podcast, or at least in my research, because they're one of the only groups of white people, or actually they weren't actually exclusively white, but majority white people in the United States who actually consistently risked their lives to stop slavery. And relevant to today's story, they raised their daughters with the same education and opportunities as they raised their sons. So like Quakers keep doing cool stuff in history way more than I, very disproportionately. Yeah, I fuck with Quakers. I've been to Quaker church and it's like oh, a yeah? cool, like I'm not religious, but uh -huh. like a Quaker church, their ceremonies are very cool. Like sometimes you sit in silence sometimes and whatever comes to you, you can speak to the group. It's like a very, I keep, keep being cool Quakers. I like, I like what you're doing. Yeah, no, that's cool. So Maria, she grows up into an educated, maybe middle-class family. Her, her mom is a library worker and her father's a school teacher who's into amateur astronomy. Her parents had like 10 fucking kids. And they still found the time to teach her all kinds of weird astronomical devices and, and math shit. When she was 12, she helped her dad calculate the solar eclipse. And then she grew up to be even cooler. When she was 17, she founded a school for girls. And the first girls that she took in were three, quote, Portuguese girls, which was slang for immigrant women of color, regardless of what nationality. And since schools weren't integrated, basically by by teaching these three girls, she knew that like the rich white women weren't going to send their kids to her school. And she did it anyway or whatever. Just like one of these like, wow, you passed this like bare minimum bar, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I mean, back then it probably was like a very, like a very cool, radical thing to do. Yeah, no, totally. But the, the, the downside is that since she's 17, when she starts this school, she's a teenager. And so she pretty quickly gets bored, I think, of teaching. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. When she's 18, she gets offered a librarianship at the Nantucket Athenium. And I'd never heard of an Athenium. Have you heard of an Athenium? I don't even know if they still exist. I've never heard of it. My spell check knows what they are. So I think it must be a thing. But 
it was this cultural center slash learning center slash library hybrid thing that they had going on, at least in Nantucket. And it seems really cool. And so she takes this job. I think maybe closes her school. I don't know. I hopefully someone else took it on. And so she now starts working at the Athenium when five years later, when she's 23, there's this 23 year old who had just escaped slavery a couple years earlier, who shows up to give his very first public address at an anti-slavery conference at the Nantucket Athenium. And the guy's name is Frederick Douglass. And so he gives his very first public address about the need for abolition and all that shit at this thing. And everyone gets really excited about him because he's wow. fucking awesome. Can you imagine here, like, like I know he was known as an, an orator. Like, can you imagine being in the crowd? It's probably like being like, oh, yeah, I was there for Nirvana's Unplugged. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <You know>? totally. <laughs> totally. Because this is his very first one. And the stuff I was reading about, it was like, he was really nervous. He was like, I don't know if these people are going to like me. And then like, everyone's just like, he like steals the show. He's just like an opening speaker or whatever. And everyone's just is like, no, this guy, this guy rules. And so she's, she stays friends with him. And they remain friends the rest of their lives. And I know this is not actually synchronicity or it's probably coincidence, but he called his newspaper the North Star. And I just, anything that's astronomical, I'm going to shove into this story. And (laughs) (laughs) it's like shameless. Yeah, yeah. Love love that for you. Yeah. Y'all hired a science fiction writer to tell a history podcast. I'm not going to lie but I'm going to look for anything I can that fits the I themes. wouldn't want you to be any other way, Margaret. Keep doing you. <laughs> and so this is something that I, I actually am trying to learn more about right now, and I don't totally know how I feel, because I, I've known for a long time that the suffragette movement and a lot of early feminism in the U.S. and U.K. was racist as fuck. And there was a lot of, like, we want the vote for white women and we don't give a shit about anyone else. But when I'm looking through the 19th century abolitionists, I keep coming across all of these places where they intertwined with early feminism. And and Maria Mitchell is one of these people and is part of the abolitionist movement. And I, it seems like there must have been like a, a bad split or maybe I'm just like spoiled and only reading the people who I come across, you know? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things where I see this a lot where people who are historically like marginalized there's this idea that we need to be working against one another. Mm-hmm. And the times where we work alongside each other, it's like you really see so clearly that we're strong. Our movements are stronger together, that unity is so much more powerful than division. Like the times where there's that, you know, alignment, I think, in history has always been so powerful. Yeah, no, totally. And it's when shit gets done, you know, <laughs> like so she was part of this movement, this abolitionist movement called the Free Pro- Produce Movement which was a, a slave labor boycott movement that was originally started, shocker, by Quakers. Um, and I think both white and black Quakers, uh, but even when I'm talking about abolitionists, I've, it's annoyingly hard to find information about the black Quakers. The free produce movement starts in the late 18th century, and by the early 1800s, various organizations of free black people are involved. And they, they opened stores that sold only slave labor-free goods, including sugar and fabric, Maria Mitchell famously wore mostly silk because she wouldn't wear cotton grown by enslaved people, which sounds like the bougiest way to <laughs> protest slavery. <laughs> yeah, you're protesting slavery and also like looking, <laughs> looking bougie and like like drippy. <laughs> yeah, fucking good look. Um, and so they had to set up their whole alternate pro- um, distribution networks for goods, and they they did. 
And this movement ran in one form or another until the 1850s, into to the decade before the Civil War. And overall, it was not actually a success. It was a, a valiant effort that a lot of people put a lot of work into. But like a lot of boycott movements, it did end up failing. And um, the, basically, it was too hard for the these goods to compete on the open market. Some of them were less high quality. Some of them were just too expensive. Not everyone can afford to roll around in silk. I don't know. And actually, just to not... I The Quakers get a lot of credit, but she actually, Maria Mitchell, converted to Unitarian. So they also get to claim her, I think. And she was not afraid of mixing science and religion. One of her quotes about her astronomical work is, every formula which expresses a law of nature is a hymn of praise to God. And this is going to be a theme that's going to come through as the religious beliefs of all these people who are supposed to be like cold, hard atheists working on science. I love that because like how many, I, I love when someone has like a scientist or like a math background, but they're also into astrology or something yeah. like that. Like I love, you know, I love the, I love the duality. Yeah. Well, that's almost everyone I'm going to talk about, which wasn't even my plan. I just was like <laughs> writing about all these people. And then I was like, all these people are really interesting. And you know what else is really interesting is the complications of being anti-capitalists who are supported by advertising. <laughs> like us. Margaret, you did not! <laughs> uh, so we have decided. Um, you also, um, Bridget, if you have any ideas for sponsors, like very wholesome sponsors, one of my favorite sponsors of the show is The Concept of Potatoes. I'm also really excited about tap water, like potable water Ooh. for free and on demand. Um, I've also, uh, would like our new sponsor, Sophie, would you be able to get, um, don't say anything to cops as a sponsor? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Just the concept. Cool. Um, Bridget, also, shout, have... shout out to that person who sent us that they got an actual water sponsor on <laughs> yeah. Twitter. I really appreciate you. <laughs> Bridget, do you have a uh, wholesome sponsor that you would like, you, you would like us to be sponsored by? Uh, yeah, I think you should be sponsored by a good comb. You know, yes. I really appreciate mm -hmm. and respect a good comb. Me too. Good All right. Call. But not a specific brand. Just the concept. No. Of, yeah. Just the concept of a reliable comb. Yeah. All right. Here's some other ads that are, may, may or may not be as cool as that. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. 
Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. All right, and we are back. So one of the other things that Maria Mitchell did actually that I found interesting is that when she was a teenager, her older sister bought a piano and Maria pitched in. And this was this massive local scandal because Quakers at the time didn't approve of music. Huh. And her father at first was like really disapproving. But basically when, as far as I, as far as I can tell, when the rest of the community was like, you need to be mad at your daughters for having a piano. He was like, I will not be mad at my daughters. And it ended up, Again, there's so many little micro moments that I would absolutely watch movies of. It ended up being this thing where like the local Quaker community came around and started incorporating music more into the stuff they do. Oh, this sounds like a like an old school version of um, what's the movie where dancing is illegal? And then at the Footloose. end, they all dance. Footloose <laughs> this is like the Quaker version of Footloose. Yeah, exactly. Um, maybe that's where this Footloose got it from. <laughs> Um, In 1847, she discovers a telescopic comet that is one that can't be seen by the naked eye because she's doing astronomy this whole time while she's doing everything else. And she wins this astronomy award, which is a a gold medal from the king of Denmark, whose father had said anyone who discovers a comet gets a gold medal. And she was the first American to win the award and the first woman to win any astronomy award. So uh, some some places will say it's the first telescopic comet, but I don't think that's true. But regardless, she became one of America's first like science celebrities or one of America's early science celebrities. And she became a household name for a while. And she stayed working at the Athenium. She also got computer work for nautical almanacs, which she did for 19 years. And she was the first woman computer in the U.S., which is it's kind of impressive that being the first woman computer in the U.S. was like the least impressive thing that she did in all of the things that I'm talking about about her. Uh, Because that would have been enough, you know, like we would be talking about her if that was what she had done. She became a professor of astronomy at Vassar College in upstate New York. And the reason that rules, from my point of view, is that she did not have a degree, but she started teaching Mm. as a professor at college. And she immediately started turning shit around in, at least in her classes. She abolished grades. She didn't track absences. She dropped her class sizes. She refused to enforce social norms on her female students, like Female students weren't supposed to like go out at night and she would like hold classes at night because they're supposed to look at the fucking stars, you know? Yeah. How else would you study astronomy if not at night? I I don't know. Maybe like you're supposed to be escorted by a man or something, you know, (laughs) but not alone because that would also be scandal. (laughs) And so she was 
such a popular teacher that Vassar College was attracting more astronomy students than Harvard. And she took the first real photos of the fucking sun, like in order to track sunspots. She brought all kinds of prestige to the college. Two men named a crater on the moon after her. And eventually she realized this is going to shock you. Nothing like this has ever happened again. She was getting less money. She was getting less than half as much money as the men, her male colleagues. I'm shocked. I know. It was scandalous. I mean, it actually... She was getting $800 a year plus room and board for herself and her father. And that's about $22,000 today. Her male colleagues were getting $1,400 to $2,100 plus room and board. They were really making a lot more than she was. Yeah. Yeah. Like twice as much. More than twice as much. Minimum twice as much. Um, And she's like the biggest draw at this fucking college. So... And it's this long, drawn-out fight where her and one of uh, another woman professor have to like file appeal after appeal, and then they had to pass three entire provisions in order to get like like that's how fucked up their system was that it took three different provisions to get it fixed. But she actually got guaranteed equal pay for women at Vassar College in the 1870s, which is the Equal Pay Act wasn't signed until 1963, and of course it's now 60 years after that, and. Women overall earn 83 cents on the white male dollar. Black women earn 64 cents on the white male dollar. And Hispanic women, which is the name, the term used by this study I'm citing, earn 57 cents on the white male dollar. So ahead of her time. Ahead of her time. And also I have to just shout out that like she it sounds like she wasn't just interested in getting equal pay for herself, but for other women who came after her. So really like lifting as she climbed, making sure that she had a legacy that wasn't just it would be so easy to just say, well, I got my equal pay because I'm the superstar professor here and I'm not really worried about women coming behind me. But she didn't do that. Totally. And she also she stays involved in feminist politics. She founds the American Association for the Advancement of Women, serves as its president for two years. And then the weirder part of what she did, at least from my point of view, she corresponded a bunch with the Moby Dick guy um, and provided information about Nantucket for his book. And he has, he has a name. It's, it's Herman Melville, but we all know his real name is Moby Dick Guy. Uh, and call, then... Call me Moby Dick Guy? Sorry. Okay, yeah. I'll stop. I'll see myself out. Okay. It's fine. Oh, no, wait, wait. Let's see if I can do my favorite joke about this off the top of my head. Well, so there's AFAB assigned female at birth, um, AMAB assigned male at birth, ACAB, all cops are bastards, and AHAB, uh, from hell's heart I stab at thee. Thank you. Yeah, that's no, pretty good. Yeah, I that's definitely did good. not make that up. Rate, but... rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Oh. <laughs> so, okay, so she's friends with Moby Dick guy. And then in her 30s, she's traveling around Italy and a bunch of Europe doing all this astronomical work. And she does this thing where she strong arms her way into like the Pope's uh, thing where you look at the stars. I didn't write down this word in my observatory. <laughs> she's trying to get into the Pope's observatory. And they're like, well, you're a woman. You can't come in here. And he... She gets like special dispensation from the Pope to go into the like no women allowed (laughs) observatory. But the guy she's bumming around with around Italy is the Scarlet Letter guy who also has another name, which is Nathaniel Hawthorne. And they probably weren't fucking. I know that's what you were thinking. She described the Scarlet Letter guy as not handsome, but he looks as the author of his work should look a little strange and odd, (laughs) as if not quite of the earth. Ouch. I know. Ouch. I know. Because all of his like books and short stories are like kind of creepy and weird. So I it's like, oh, yeah, he looks like the kind of guy who would write creepy, weird short stories yeah. as he does. Yeah. He's a fucking edgelord. I'm going to get to them in that moment. 
Um, so she's actually probably either gay or asexual. And it's really hard to figure that out about women, especially in the 19th century. Um, whereas the Scarlet Letter guy was absolutely gay for Moby Dick guy and vice versa. Melville once wrote about his bud Nathan, Already I feel that Hawthorne has dropped germinous seeds into my soul. He expands and deepens down the more I contemplate him, and further and further shoots his strong New England roots into the hot soil of my southern soul. Mm, them strong New England roots! Um, <laughs> this is the only time I'm going to say I hope they didn't fuck about a gay couple, because the uh, fucking Hawthorne is a racist little fucking edgelord. All of his friends are northern abolitionists, but he was like, no, we can't risk breaking up the union over slavery. Whereas fucking Melville wrote a whole ass book about how shitty slavery was 10 years before the Civil War and then wrote this like book of poems about how great all of the people who went and fucking killed the Confederates are. And so Melville was I, I hope they broke up over that is what I'm trying to say. Oh, my God. Can you imagine like the annoying ass conversations where Hawthorne is just like, I'm just asking questions. I'm just playing devil's advocate. Why are you getting so upset? He is absolutely that guy. That is him. Um, I feel like I dated a guy like that before. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) So anyway, back to Maria. Two years before she died, she finally got her degree, which was when Columbia University gave her an honorary doctorate. And I like this especially because this is my plan. I don't have a college degree. I just want someone to fucking hand me one for being cool. That is my long-term plan. Anyway, that's, that's Maria Mitchell, America's first female computer, and I think she fucking ruled. But while we're talking about words for how we describe people, it turns out the word scientist was coined by a man, William Wayhill, to describe a specific woman, Mary Somerville, to quote historian Maria Popova. The commonly used term up to that point, man of science, clearly couldn't apply to a woman, nor to what Waywell considered the peculiar illumination of the female mind, the ability to synthesize ideas and connect seemingly disparate disciplines into a clear lens on reality. Because he couldn't call her a physicist, a geologist, or a chemist, she had written with deep knowledge of all of these disciplines and more. Waywell unified them all into scientist. Wow, I, I, this is so fascinating. And I guess I have a question for the both of you, if that's okay. Like, you know, I... Time and time again, I'll hear something where it's like, actually, this was first coined to talk about a woman or the first computer was a woman. So this, it blows my mind that the first, that the term scientist was coined to have a, you know, gender neutral way to talk about a, a woman who practiced science. But why do you think this history goes overlooked? Like, why is that not common knowledge, even to people who are interested in this kind of thing? Sophie, you want to go first? I mean, because the patriarchy has had too much power for far too long and it's depressing, but I feel like we're finally fighting back on it enough where we're learning about things that we should have known a long time ago. And it's also that there is so many different ways to communicate now. And so people that might have been afraid to have spoken up face to face are able to speak up on what they believe in a uh, safer environment. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm going to go with that one. Wait, no, I had oh, another cool. I had another one too though. Um <laughs> so I think that one of the things that happens is that when you know, I, I get asked like why does it matter if this person in history was gay or like why does it matter that this person who invented this thing or that thing was a woman or something? Can it just be about the knowledge? And so because because identity matters basically, but people don't want to pretend like identity matters. And so that's a way to kind of keep us invisible if like Anytime a woman does something, you're like, humanity did this thing. 
And and that's also what people say when a man does something. But it but if you don't draw attention to the fact that someone who's been silenced and shut up and had to overcome systemic barriers because of, you know, race or gender or sexual orientation or whatever. I don't know. That's that's my take. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I think of all the ways that different people have been further people who are already marginalized are like further marginalized by the way that we tell their stories or don't tell their stories. Like I'm a huge fan of the painter Frida Kahlo. I didn't Mm -hmm. know she had a disability until like recently because we don't think of, you know, her story as being like a story of disability justice, right? Like all the different ways that like these pieces of our identity, that things that make us who we are and inform our experiences and all of that, we are just unseen. And if we're unseen, it takes away our power. I think it's, I think the work that you're doing to like, retell these stories and like make them gay, make them queer, make them who they were, I think is so important and powerful. Oh, I think we're also a like world of headlines. We read the headline. We don't actually read the article. We don't actually read the article. People read the the snazzy headline. I think that was the same since the beginning of time. You don't actually do the work to find out the information. And and like I feel like shows like this where we're going and you're learning all these things are so vital to our story as 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 people. Yeah, and it's like and the people who are writing those headlines are going to come at it with their biases whereas, yeah. you know, when I write short, when I do a very quick version of someone's story, I'm absolutely going to be like and he loved fucking dudes, you know? Because <laughs> it's not going to get included in the other versions of the story even though that makes no sense. It makes no sense to disclude that. And I mean, you know, I mean, it just depends on what you're talking about, like maybe not like if I'm talking about someone who like I don't know, runs a gay bar, like <laughs> maybe like maybe that's implicit you know that maybe instead of be like and he was asexual i don't know anyway writing us back into history it's important yeah and so so after maria mitchell it wasn't too long before computing became women's work and actually a lot of the early computers i think came from her students basically because she was teaching so many women astronomy and that's something else that also gets left out is that uh, you know, you have this like individual genius who discovers ideas, whereas teaching isn't as important. And and that's actually something that come up a lot, comes up a lot in terms of, I think women in particular breaking through boundaries is that we like teach each other, and we we take people along with us. Like what you were talking about earlier about like not I got mine, fuck you. You know, so computing becomes women's work, and eventually black women's work in particular, first and foremost because you can get away with paying women less than men. Harvard Observatory, starting in 1877, was excited to maximize their budget. There's, a, there's so many numbers they have to crunch. And they could pay women 25 cents to 50 cents an hour, or roughly 7 to $14 an hour in today's wages. So for decades, these people who are doing all of the important, like crazy complicated math were getting paid $7 an hour. Uh, to quote that writer Maria Popova again, Decades before they were allowed to vote and a century before NASA's unheralded women mathematicians helped put the first man on the moon, these women, who came to be known as the, quote, Harvard computers, illuminated the composition of stars and classified hundreds of thousands of stars according to a system they invented, which astronomers continue to use today. Their calculations became the basis for the discovery that the universe is expanding. So that's what they're... So I'm like, oh, they're just crunching numbers and discovering that the universe is expanding and, you know... Learning how to classify stars. Yeah, not actual like stuff that would involve, you know, analytical thinking or. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Just secretarial work, really. Yeah. And so this goes on for decades. And I actually didn't find a 
in a quick search, I wasn't able to find the end date of when Harvard's computers came to an end, but it ran up until at least 1937 was the last one I, person I specifically tracked her employment at that. And I, I think it probably lasted until the era of the electronic computer. But I prefer to think that they're still there, hopefully better paid, doing astronomical math by hand, just like some weird cabal of people hanging out at Harvard. I don't know. So, so women started working as computers because they were cheaper to hire. Then during World War II, computing and programming were cemented as women's work because all the boys were off at war. So then some women supervisors come in, like Macy Roberts, who oversaw California's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in the 1940s, which is later part of NASA and designed the first artificial satellite that the U.S. ever put in space. And she hired only women because she thought it made for a more cohesive team and teamwork-focused group. And the way that they would code women can apply to this job into job applications, because they couldn't say, hey, women can apply too. So they would say, no degree necessary. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And so this attitude of hiring women spread, and soon women were calculating everything from uh, the lift for World War II bombers to rocket paths. And of course, as cool as looking at the stars is, it's even cooler to figure out how to reach them and reach out and touch them, which brings us to Dorothy Vaughn. But before we talk about Dorothy Vaughn, we need to talk about Never Talk to Cops, the sponsor of this show. The sponsor of the show is Shut the Fuck Up. It doesn't do you any good ever. You'd always think it's going to do you good, but it doesn't. It does not. Yeah. As well as potatoes. I, I really like potatoes. I'm going to keep hitting A good that comb. A good A comb. A good comb. Yeah. And Tap water. I'd like to throw out songs that are nostalgic in a good way. Yes. Oh. That is what we are sponsored by. As a concept? By. Yes. Yep. As well as these other things. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric. Cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I dot com. 
Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. And we are back, and we're talking about Dorothy Vaughn, who's a black woman who was born in 1910 in Missouri, but then moved at age seven to West Virginia, kicked ass in school, kicked ass in college at Wilberforce University, a historically black university, and then decided not to go to grad school, but instead to teach math in high school because the Great Depression hit and her family really needed the money, especially if her sister was going to get to go to college too. In 1941, President Roosevelt desegregated the defense industry, which like sort of, he sort of desegregated it. He like, I think on a federal level, he desegregated it, but didn't get desegregated at a state level. But it allowed black people to start working on the war effort at home. So, so NACA, the precursor of NASA, went about hiring black women in their quest to make airplanes because they were trying to ramp up the U.S.'s production from 3,000 airplanes a year to 50,000 airplanes a year with the slogan, Victory Through Air Power. And Vaughn left teaching and started doing sky math and space math instead, even though she'd never flown on an airplane, which fucking rules. Doesn't rule that she never got to fly an airplane. I'm sure she did eventually, but fucking rules that she did space math. And she's one of the she's one of the characters in the in Hidden Figures, the the book and then the movie that is really cool and people should see. I think it's um Octavia Spencer is her is plays her character. Ma from the movie Ma. Have you ever seen that? I haven't, no. I, I liked all the actors in that movie so much. I have. I, I know yeah. exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Octavia is a phenomenal actress. She's phenomenal. so good. She's, she's fantastic. I personally think she should be cast in every movie. Just every movie. I think that Don't that's probably true. She's just that good. Yeah. Maybe every Ma. character. I can't believe we got a Ma reference on this. It's amazing. Yo, I saw Ma opening night in the theater drunk, and it was one of the best nights of my life. 10 out of 10. I love that for you. So Fuck yeah. Uh, I love that Margaret has no idea. No, I have no idea. I have no idea what you're talking about. I, no <laughs> talking about. I live under a rock, she's, and I'm so embarrassed. She's too highbrow. <laughs> uh, no, I just don't know shit about shit. You can ask me lowbrow shit. It's going to go over my head, too. This hap- There was a lowbrow one last one we recorded. That, uh, oh, it's so funny. Working with, with Margaret and Robert Evans, they don't know they don't know anything. <laughs> it's great. It's refreshing. It makes me feel better and also feel worse at the same time. <laughs> so. Anyways. <laughs> before we were all making fun of me. No, I'm just kidding. Um. <laughs> All right, so so after the war, a lot of the white women went back home, but most of the black women stayed uh, for a lot of reasons, one of which I believe was that they were basically earning about four times as much as they would. if, Even though they were getting paid way less than the men, they were still getting paid way more than they were as black school teachers, in, you know, especially in racially segregated schools, I believe. Duchess Harris is the granddaughter of one of the black computers at NASA, and she wrote a book called Hidden Human Computers, which came out around the same time as uh, Shetterly's book, Hidden Figures, which is the one that became a movie. But they, 
I was like really confused because there's two books with basically the same name, but they actually were working on the books around the same time and they cover sort of different topics and they ended up kind of teaming up on like going to NASA to do some of their like tours and stuff together. So it actually became a really cool story about the two books as compared to how it first appears when you realize that there's two books that came out at the same time with the same name. That's my long tangent about the two books. So Duchess Harris, when she's interviewed about the black computers and, and race relations, she says, this is not a story of healing race relations. The government was desperate for help. These black women were hired as a last resort when they ran out of white women. The government wanted to win the war and later to put an American in space after the Russians launched Sputnik in 1957. So a lot of the like feel good stuff, uh, you know. Yeah. I mean, the movie Hidden Figures, it really makes it, I, I don't know if y'all have seen it, but it really goes out of its way to suggest that, like, this was about feel good equality. Like, there's a scene where um, the white man who's running their lab, I want to say it's a... It's that famous dude. Yeah. He's portrayed by Kevin Costner. Costner. Yeah. Costner. yeah, yeah. Uh, like, he, like... Like the, like the women are having to like walk very far away to go to the bathroom mm-hmm. because it's a segregated bathroom. And he Her, dramatically Al like Harrison is the is the name of the character. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he, he dramatically like takes the, the whites only sign off of the bathroom to be like, no, you can use any bathroom you want. And I think it I, I like the movie mm-hmm. and I, I like the sort of like warm, fuzzy equality stuff. But it does obscure the reality that you, Margaret, Mm -hmm. just said that like they were trying to win. This was, you know, I think it really goes back to this idea of like, you know, nationalism can be kind of an oppressive system that doesn't really see you and is not really interested in your inequality or Mm -hmm. like seeing you as an individual or a person. And so, you know, against that backdrop, it was like, yeah, it was we wanted to win. We wanted to, you know, further our nationalist agenda and these people were useful to us. And so we, quote, cared about them insofar as they were useful. Their labor was useful. Yeah, uh, yeah these systems don't see us. Yeah. Uh, when I found out what actually happened with the, the segregation signs and the people who actually did that work, I'm going to get to that in a moment. Okay. Oh, um, all right. <laughs> no, yeah. No, I, I like, I, I knew some of it before I watched the movie. I watched the movie as part of preparing this script. And I, I read some articles about it before, about some of the stuff it gets right and wrong. But um, I don't know. I still really like the movie. But with a, especially that scene. Okay, so a lot of Dorothy Vaughn's career gets talked about in Hidden Figures, which focuses on three black women who got the first U.S. astronauts into space. And it, a lot of it's true, although it skims over Vaughn's own math genius. It mostly talks about her as like a supervisor, right? But she helped write the manuals and set the standards for all of the computers at, at NACA. And she worked in the West Area Computing Unit, which was a segregated black unit. When her white supervisor died in 1949, she became acting supervisor, and it took two years for that to be made official and for her to get the raise that should have come along with the increase in responsibility. And she was NACA's first black supervisor and one of, one of the only women supervisors. But as a supervisor, she intervened to fight for promotions and pay raises for all women computers, both, both black and white. And when NACA became NASA in 1958, it desegregated the West End Computing Unit and integrated the rest of NASA. And she then joined a a race and gender diverse division working on electronic computing. She taught herself the programming language Fortran and then taught it to all her co-workers. She fucking ruled. Um, And West Area Computers ran from 1943 to 1958. They got paid an awful lot less than the men. The the article I read implied that they were paid the same as white women. I, I don't know. 
but women in general were getting paid a salary, a starting salary of about the equivalent of $23,000 a year in today's money, whereas men were getting a starting salary of $41,000 a year, which like, Jesus, not only that disparity, but also like, damn, even the men are getting fucking ripped off. Yeah, everyone's getting exploited here. Yeah, it's like, I, I know that they're working. They're not working eight hour days and then going home, you know, but they make about four times as much. The black women working at, at NASA are making about four times as much as they would be elsewhere, which doesn't make the fucking pay balance not fucked up. It really just shows how fucked up everything is, you know, all the way down. So Hidden Figures is all about the segregated bathrooms. That's one of the main points of, of tension in the story. And Kevin Costner comes and I'm sorry, I'm reading this off my script, even though we just talked about it, but I don't know how to skim fast enough. Uh, so he gets out of crowbar and he rips down the colored women's restroom sign and he announces in the worst line in the entire movie, we all pee the same color here at NASA. <laughs> um, I forgot about that. It is bad. That line's not good. I know. And the thing is, there was someone ripping down segregation signs during the NACA years when the place was segregated. A black woman who worked as a computer named Miriam Mann. She was actually the, the grandmother of this, the woman I was saying who wrote this book. So Miriam Mann is all of four foot 11. So her friends call her Big Mama. And Aww. there's separate tables at the back of the dining hall that are marked with a sign that say colored computers. And Miriam didn't like that. So finally, one day she stole the sign, put it in her purse. The next day they put the sign back. So she stole it again. And so she just did this over and over and over again before they just stopped putting the sign back. I don't know. And so the fact that that particular, like, it's already kind of bad that it's a white savior move to have Kevin Costner come do it. But it's an extra little dig that it was a black woman who did it. Yeah. I mean, what, like, I, I, I know all the, like, I, I bet I can imagine some Hollywood studio somewhere being like, we have to make Kevin Costner, we have to give him this, like, dramatic moment to have him be the, like, savior, the ally, mm -hmm. yada, yada, yada. I get it. But, like, imagine if they had depicted a true, a more truthful version of that scene and had it be Big Mama who did it. Like, yeah. I don't know. Like, what would be the... I don't know. I just... I, I, I know how Hollywood thinks, but it would have been that much more authentic and powerful to have a Black woman be the person who, who did that. Because also... Like, it would honor the fact that doing that took a lot of risk and a lot of, like, gumption yeah. and chutzpah, you know? Like, it, it, it sort of erases that that fact. Like, having a white, the white guy who's running shit do it yeah. is not as cool as having the black woman with everything to lose do it. But that's what happened. Like, the, like the reality is more badass than the Hollywood version. Totally, yeah, because he's taking no risk. and Exactly. Yeah, yeah and, and apparently her husband was like, honey, you probably shouldn't do that. You're going to get fired and we need this job, you know? Um, and she was like, oh, I, I can't fucking, no, I'm taking this fucking sign. You know, it's this thing that like seems like a little petty thing. Like, haha, it's mischief. I stole the sign, you know? But it it wasn't. She like really put herself out there to do it. Ugh. So another West Virginia raised black girl who did math there. Well, she was a woman, but I wrote it in the script about she's a girl because she was raised in, anyway, Katherine Johnson who did a lot of the math, who put the first people into space, who's also in this movie. And I'm not actually from West Virginia, but I live here now. So I, I have to do this whole thing where I'm like contractually obliged to get excited about anything that has to do with West Virginia. So that's why <laughs> I'm, I'm pointing this out. And her county didn't even offer public school for black kids past eighth grade. So her entire fucking family knew how smart she was and how important school was for her. 
So they moved two hours away so that they could go to school elsewhere. And they spent like basically, and then summers they would come back home to where the rest of their extended family live, I believe. But she was smart as fuck and her parents weren't going to see that go to waste. So she graduated high school when she was fucking 14 because I, she was smart as fuck. She went to West Virginia State University, which is another HBU, a historically black university. She graduates at 18 from fucking college. And then for grad school, she's one of three black students who went off to West Virginia University, a white school, to be the first students to integrate it. In 1952, she got hired by NACA as a computer. And soon she was assigned to the all-male, all-white flight research team, where she was quickly and aggressive. Basically, she showed up and, and actually did kind of act like she does in the movie, where she pretty aggressively proves herself and says, I'm not going to take any shit. And she ends up being like the first woman in their planning meetings just by saying like, no, I need to go into this fucking meeting. She calculated the, tra the trajectory for Alan Shepard's May 5th, 1961 flight, the first time a U.S. astronaut went into space. The first U.S. astronaut to actually orbit the Earth, John Glenn, had his trajectory calculated by a computer, like an IBM, not a person. And so he insisted that Katherine Johnson double check all the numbers, like specifically asked for her by name, which is kind of interesting to me because he was hella sexist, which I'll get to later. Um, and then she goes on to help Apollo 11 get to the moon. As she described her time after NACA became NASA and segregation ended, we needed to be assertive as women in those days, assertive and aggressive. And the degree to which we had to be that way depended on where you were. I had to be. In the early days of NASA, women were not allowed to put their names on the reports. No woman in my division had had her name on a report. I was working with Ted Skopinski, and he wanted to leave and go to Houston. But Henry Pearson, our supervisor, he was not a fan of women, kept pushing him to finish the report when we, that we were working on. Finally, Ted told him, Catherine should finish the report. She's done most of the work anyway. So Ted left Pearson with no choice. I finished the report, and my name went on it, and that was the first time a woman in our division had her name on something. I don't know. She fucking ruled. She lived to be 101. She lived long enough to see herself as a major character in a major film, which I can't even imagine what that would. Yes. Oh, we have this, like, you know, the saying, like, give people their flowers while they can still smell them. Yeah. I've, I've seen pictures of her, like, getting celebrated uh, while she was alive, which I love. And fun fact, I have a picture of her on my water bottle here. Yeah. I don't know if you can see that. A little, car <laughs> a little cartoon sticker of her. I love uh, that so much. <laughs> That's fucking cool. No, I mean, like, it's I, like the, like, people should Google pictures of her later in her life getting to meet, I think it was Taraji P. Henson who portrayed her yes. and like getting to meet Obama. Like, I'm happy that she was on this earth while she got to really see people celebrate her legacy. It, it really is an important thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cool people who did cool stuff. Yeah. The the last person I'm going to talk really briefly about today is the opposite of a cool person. Oh, good. The chief architect of U.S.'s lunar mission was a fucking Nazi. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, Margaret. Like in a, okay. had been a member of the Nazi party since. Werner von Bion was the director of the Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama. But before that, he lived in Germany. In 1937, he joined the Nazi party. Later, when he defected to the U.S., he claimed he joined in 1939, but he was lying. I think he wanted to look a little bit less zealous of a fascist. But he really was probably, he's like the ultimate bad version of the I don't care as long as I get to do science guy, which kind of underpins the whole thing about how science is often divorced from politics. And sometimes that's sort of cool. And sometimes it's really, really not cool. So he's a Nazi rocket scientist. 
who joined the SS and used slave labor to build his rockets. Like literally he would walk down the halls of concentration camps and pick out prisoners he wanted to enslave to make his war machines. And then he became one of 1,600 scientists and engineers and shit that the U.S. grabbed from Germany in what gets called Operation Paperclip as they were looking for an advantage in the Cold War against Russia. But to be clear, just to both sides of this shit, the USSR was no better. They recruited 2,200 folks of their own from the Nazi scientists just fighting over the spoils of war. I feel like the like the understanding of what you're talking about, how like like the U.S. government is like, we don't give a shit. We just want to win this fucking war. It goes both ways in a really <laughs> grim way. Yeah. So that's where I want to break it today uh, with all the women computers who did all the wildest calculations in history. Bridget, how are you feeling about these people? Well, I I like that so many of them were were, like you said, doing cool shit. Even if it was for like, nat like nations that couldn't really, it's al it's almost like I wish that they were living at a time where they could do this shit for institutions or or organizations that could really see them, like you know, mm -hmm. yeah. But I I this is very much like these are the, these are my heroes, these are my idols, these are the people that like allowed me to see myself in technology and computing and all of that. Um, yeah, I love them. Yeah, is there anything I missed about them that you want to like shout out or talk about, like? Uh, no, I think you really did a great job. My only, the only thing mm -hmm. I love, the only little thing that I love is, uh, when I was researching this for a, another project, mm -hmm. I learned that the word kill a girl, did you come across that in your no, research? No, I haven't. That, that like computing was so associated with like women and secretarial work mm -hmm. that the phrase kill a girl, kind of like kilowatt, um, was <laughs> that meant roughly the computing power of one girl working for one hour. And so they used to describe it as like, oh, a kill a girl. Like, that's the computing power of one girl working for one hour. Uh, so fun fact. That's amazing. <laughs> cool. Well, when we come back on Wednesday, we're going to talk about gay computer scientists, Soviet space cults, astronauts, cosmonauts, uh, weird people, a whole bunch of people. Cool people that did cool stuff, perhaps? Mostly. Amazing. Uh, Bridget, do you have any pluggables for us? Uh, yeah, this has been great. Um, please check out my podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet, on this very network. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Bridget Marie or on Instagram at Bridget Marie in DC. I want you to know it's very hard for me to not write a terrible joke that you've heard a thousand times about the title of your podcast into my introduction to you about. Ooh, what's. Oh, it's just going to be something like you say there's no girls on the Internet, but here we are or whatever. Fuck, I don't know. I really <laughs> yes. the world is better served that I took it out of the script. Oh, but you no. added it at the end. Thank goodness. You know, they say there's no girls on the Internet, but here's three of them talking about technology and computers. So you tell me. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. And we'll be back on Wednesday. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. 
featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's. Because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.